0: Land Woman,
1: Conversations on Changing the World, the podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host, Politics and public service are in the blood of my guest today, as is the drive to fight social injustice wherever she sees it. Representative Amelia Sykes is both the Ohio House Minority Whip and the youngest black woman in Ohio's legislature. When she began to be repeatedly singled out by State House Security Guards, Representative Sykes decided to push back against institutional assumptions about gender, race, and political legitimacy. She talks with me today about the impetus behind her hashtag WeBelongHere movement for women in political positions across the country. Amelia, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really thrilled to be able to talk with you.
2: Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun.
1: We have a lot to talk about. You were elected to the Ohio House of Representatives before you were 30.
2: Yes. I was actually sworn in on the day after my 29th birthday. So that was kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. A good good birthday
1: present. But that was not happenstance. Um, One could say that politics is in your DNA. You are wired for it, uh, particularly serving the Midwest and Northeast Ohio. Do you want to talk about that some?
2: Sure. So one of the things I often say is I was literally born into public service. My mother was pregnant with me when she was on Akron City Council. And she served as the first black woman to serve as an at-large councilwoman in the city of Akron. And um I often joke with her or or say at events that, you know, most parents expose their children to classical music when they're in utero, but my mom exposed me to her fighting with the mayor. And so <laughs> what that does to your child I'm not exactly sure but this is I think you even. are sure. Right? <laughs> this is what we get. This is what we got out of that. So maybe it's good for some, maybe it's bad for others, but um that was that is definitely my experience and my father who was also a member of Akron City Council yes. I then was appointed to the Ohio House um, and currently serves in the Ohio Senate, and so we served together. Um, also was very instrumental in um, the DNA of me being in public service. So definitely worked, or grew up in a house watching what it was like to work in public service, uh, to be uh, needed by the community, to serve the community. Uh, it was something that was not only a nature but a nurture for me, so my sister and I have definitely gotten the political bug in, in different ways, but we really couldn't escape it even if I was if going cried. to say, you
1: didn't have much choice <laughs> in the matter. I recently read an old Christian Science Monitor article of interviewing your parents about uh, a life of public service, and I was so delighted because the interviewer talked about your mama bouncing you on her knee while your dad made your rice cereal and tried (laughs) to feed it to you it was so delightful but what really struck me also about that article was they talked about the challenges of not just being two people who were politicians and public servants in the household but also raising two girls in that household And in the context of your parents at the time also working to advance their own education levels, my understanding is is higher education is something that they were both passionately or are both passionately committed to, but at the time for themselves. And in that article, your mother made a really lovely statement that she was only a few hours short of her bachelor's degree. And here she was already on city council, but she wanted that degree because she wanted to show her daughters it matters.
2: It absolutely does matter. And then she went on and got a master's degree, so she wasn't uh-huh. even done then. Um, and I think it, it certainly instilled in my sister and I, who we, we both have master's degree and I have a professional degree, a law degree, that if we wanted to be successful um, and be helpful and useful to our communities, we had to learn something. And uh, some of that was formal uh, learning that uh, not just what you learn from your friends and your neighborhoods and uh, kind of the back and forth of just being a human being, but you had to actually read and write and have some people instruct you and, and attain those goals so we could be productive members of society. So my sister and I have both done that. My sister, in fact, is a teacher. So she is certainly paying it for it to another generation of students to um, care about and appreciate learning.
1: I think about that in the context of politics today and this anti-intellectual drumbeat that runs through so much of political discourse that that the more you know, the better educated you are, the more you are dismissed as an elite or a crackpot or somebody who doesn't get it.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that is one of the most mind-boggling things about uh, my job some days when we have facts and we have statistics and we have evidence and people just dismiss them maybe for a story that someone told them one day 20 years ago um about something that has never been you know confirmed or and it's and it's hard because you you know some of these stories are real and uh you want to change something for somebody but when we completely dismiss all the facts and the evidence that we can acquire just because it emotionally feels good or it goes along with maybe one group of religious groups tenets it 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 really makes you wonder what we're doing um, why do we even have why do we even have these institutions of higher learning and if we're only going to dismiss it whenever we're in the state house or whenever we're in these legislative bodies and it, it's really frustrating especially as someone like myself who um, has a master's degree in a a science, not a hard science, it's in public health, but most of what public health is is relying on data and science and empirical evidence to make decisions, and when I get into committee rooms and all that information is presented and it's dismissed, it it becomes very frustrating, but it is a reality, Um, so we just have to figure out how to work around it, and sometimes put facts inside a a story and maybe people will be more receptive. It's a little Alice in Wonderland
1: esque, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes where
2: up is down and in is out and truth is ignored. Yeah. It's one of the things the places that really drives me mad is on Ways and Means Committee, which is taxes. It's all numbers, dollars and cents. And we can come forth with any economist type of proposal or documents and we can show what has happened in other states and it'll just be dismissed because for some reason this tax break just makes a lot of sense and we know this other state has done it we know what happened to that state they're in financial ruin and cities may be on the brink of bankruptcy but we're going to do it anyway because it's politically expedient it it just drives me bonkers and i really wish we could legislate a much better way than that um i the people deserve for us to do better and be better than that And people that don't grasp
1: that fundamentally we pay one way or we pay another way. Oh my goodness, yes. And prevention is always a cheaper cheaper bill.
2: It is. And as a public health uh, professional, I am always singing the gospel of public health. Um, I'm the only person that's formally trained in public health in the legislature. I think maybe ever. And uh, it's... That alone is a shocking factor. It it is. And, and, you know, the one thing about public health, which has been around for hundreds of years um, and then became more formal and then became a little bit more recognized and and is probably, not probably, it is the one degree program or industry that's actually growing and and it's – sometimes it's a social science depends on where you are uh it's one one of the only ones that's growing uh, because it mixes social justice with science with some other elements that younger people are really interested in uh, which is kind of fun so there's going to be more people which gives me some hope that we will start using prevention as a as a model and public health is not just a, a catchphrase but actually a way of looking at the world but You know, we can go on and on and on about all the ways that preventing bad outcomes can save us money and time and lives. But I get in those committee rooms and I share and I show them how that could be true. And and none of it really seems to matter, unfortunately.
1: What do you think is the stumbling block? Because I think we tend to believe, of course, that knowledge is power. And that truth wins out. <laughs> and certainly empirical data makes things seem self-evident.
2: You would think, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, yeah. And I too, I share that I am always surprised that things that seem like obvious conclusions from what the data say are denied or considered radical or are dismissed as outlandish or often dismissed because of the demographic characteristics Mm -hmm. of the messenger. Yeah,
2: all those things are true. One thing that I think inhibits legislatures, elected officials from the prevention type model, early interventions is it's not advantageous for us as an elected official. It doesn't serve me someone who has to go before the public and be elected every two or four or six, whatever years and say, well, I invested $50 million in this thing and you won't see the benefit for 25 years. Uh, That's not really something most people would be interested in running on. But if I say I, I, Invested or allocated 50 million dollars for this building. It'll be built in nine months, and I can stand in front of it and cut the ribbon. You can see that I've actually done something, and the fact that that's what our model looks like and what is motivating all of us—it it makes sense why some of these uh, prevention and public health principles don't don't matter. So if I say I'm going to invest in early education. You know, I and I can talk about how that helps people do better in school, have better health outcomes, not end up in prison. I won't see that until that child's turn eighteen or twenty five or thirty. But if I say I'm gonna invest in early childhood education and I'm gonna build a building and not talk about anything else except for this building that I can touch and I can see and I can drive past it, I think that resonates a little bit differently and makes it easy for us to sell ourselves as Um, I mean, essentially, we're salespeople. We're selling ourselves and our our skills, and that is a skill that I can show someone. It's tangible that this building was built or this program existed, Um, and it just makes it so hard for public health to to get anywhere uh, because you don't see see it, you can't touch it. And when we're in two-year budget cycles, um, and some of these programs require five or ten years to see the results or even before things start to change a little bit, the next budget cycle and nothing's changed, it's on a shopping block. And a two-year program usually is it's always nothing. ineffective. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. just not enough time, so it it makes sense. I mean, when if, when I one of the things I've had to do is think about it that way because it just makes a little bit more sense considering the world that we're in, what our motivations are, um, but we really have to do much better at long-term planning for so many reasons. I mean, beyond just how we legislate, just What we do um, every day, the decisions we make about what we eat and uh, whether we exercise, and uh, all those types of things. But that's a whole other story. (laughs) Yeah. It also it it
1: makes me wonder: Do we have to find more creative ways of assessing good outcomes? Yeah. So that they make sense to people. We're not asking them to evaluate a child. 15, 18, 20 years down the road. But if we could have an outcome, if we could find a way to assess early education in a way that's more immediate, we might be more effective.
2: Yeah, I think so. And part of it is just kind of how our our culture is. I mean, I think we all even, we're just a microcosm of the society as a whole. So we're just doing what society wants us to do. Um, And we are, you know, especially millennials like myself, we are always tagged as the microwave generation where we want things to happen fast <laughs> yeah. and quick. And and so it just makes sense that we only want the fast and quick things because the people who are supporting us and making sure that we have a job and are in these positions want things to be fast and quick. Um, and so until we can get around that delayed gratification and uh, push things down the road and, and maybe it's a matter of just whether or not they even trust what we're saying is true or that you know, what we're investing in even makes sense and will make sense down the road. Maybe that's part of the problem as well. Uh, but we we do have to spend a little bit more time talking about outcomes and what a good outcome actually is and not making it so immediate and so big and shiny and expensive usually too. <laughs> you know, as you're talking, I'm reminded of, of the
1: story of how we got school lunch programs that uh, under the Truman administration that there were so many young men showing up for the draft Mm -hmm. who failed their physical exams because they had been malnourished as children coming out of the Depression. So the the thought was we've got to make sure little kids have enough to eat, but it was for the purpose of we have to have soldiers (laughs) (laughs) at the age of 18 who were physically capable of soldiering in a bizarre kind of way when you think when you think about it now to um, a completely to justify different me- yeah meaning yeah yeah which we're at a place of having to think more creatively we do in those ways we absolutely do but part of the the quick answer also means you have to really make it as simplistic as possible isn't it that, that Yeah. so I'm, much of what we talk so about is social social ills are very complex
2: They are, but they they all have very basic beginnings. I mean, one of the things I always refer back to when we're in session or in in some type of committee is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's as basic as it comes, just thinking about how do we solve a really complex problem and make it as non-complex as possible, even just for us to understand it as legislators, but for us to digest it and then push it back out to the public to help them understand what we did and why we chose uh, those different meanings. And maybe some people have been exposed to it. I mean, I know we've got our handful of social scientists in the legislature and we've got a whole bunch of business owners and a lot of lawyers. And I can remember in law school, my law one particular law school teacher didn't believe anything in social science. Uh, she just said, "Well, how do you know? You you know, you just make up all this stuff and <laughs> think. <"Well>, I <laughs> okay. guess you could, but that's no different than these laws that we have too. So right, those are right. just totally made up too. <laughs> so you can't really be judgmental <laughs> of one um, science over the other. But yeah, I mean, things are just very basic. I mean, just how how do things work? How can you maneuver? Can you breathe? Can you? <laughs> can you function um we miss a lot of that trying to be a little bit too complicated and i I think it's showing in our our legislation and um the way we're really not impacting people's lives the way that we should i'm curious
1: about again going back to your childhood and your parents and growing up in a household where politics was just normal (laughs) <laughs> and first of all have you always seen yourself going into politics or or should I say have you seen yourself go, being able to go into anything but
2: politics given no, your upbringing my goal was to never ever 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 be an elected official ah um, I did everything I could to not be an elected official <laughs> clearly I failed at that so <laughs> I needed a better plan or something uh, but I I saw what it was like. I mean, my parents worked very hard. They tried very hard, but it was never good enough. Um, things, Some things changed. Some remain the same. Some, some of those issues were more complicated than their level of government or even just more than what was a will for any other person to deal with. I mean, I even look at my community now and the levels of poverty are still there for lots of different reasons. And even today, when you talk to people who might have still been in place when they were working, that it it makes sense why we haven't solved these problems. People don't really want to solve these problems because um, they are hard, and it sometimes takes completely shaking up the system. And if people aren't willing to do it, we're never going to see the meaningful changes that we want. So. I I just always thought it was a, a job I never wanted to do. I thought it was very honorable. I never thought it was a disgusting job, and I didn't have negative views of the people who participated in elected politics, but it just, in my mind, was not for me. You know, it was very late nights, very early mornings, seven days a week, always something. Um, and it really is just reflective of the needs that people have, that people need help, and they're not getting it. So they're, they're going to people who they think can help them figure it out whether or not they can or can't I think folks found some comfort in a listening ear at the very least and so that was very overwhelming and I saw it and I saw it as a child and had sometimes spilled over when they couldn't find them they were looking for me and I'm thinking I'm 13 I don't really (laughs) can't drive I can't really do anything so um, I wish I really could help you but I I, I can't so um, so when I could I left the state I went to college and Three different states. I was in Alabama and Georgia and Florida, and I stayed away as long as I could to avoid it because I knew it was there. And and people would always say, "Oh, you're going to run for office? And what do you think? You like this level? You want this? You want?" I just like, no, no, no. There's plenty of people who are interested. It's not for me. And um, I had moved back home. I was working in in Georgia for a bankruptcy judge. I was a law clerk after law school, and I moved back home and was volunteering at legal aid and. It was around the time my dad was term limited, and he and I was watching and hearing the folks who were lining up for replacing him, and I knew them pretty well because I lived here my pretty much my whole life, and I just thought, oh, no, they wouldn't be good representatives. They wouldn't be as thoughtful and as caring and really uh, understand the needs of the district because... I just didn't feel like they wanted to be the state representative to be helpful, to be of service. They wanted to be state representative so they could put state representative before their names. Um, and so and that was very on troubling. From there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was very troubling to me. And I, you know, still very much love my community, have a lot of respect for it. A lot of the people who, who helped raise me are still here. And um, so I felt a responsibility to them to make sure that someone like that didn't end up in this position. And so I ran and I won. And so my... Plans were thwarted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the siren song
2: was yeah, too great definitely. For you. Well,
1: I, I would imagine growing up in a household where politics and being a politician was seen as honorable, as a noble calling, where the idea of public service was you made sacrifices to give of yourself to help your community. And yeah. the people around you. We've come a far distance from oh, that yeah. notion of who politicians are and what
2: politics is about. We definitely have. And it's sad because it it's already difficult to engage people in elect in their politi- in politics, you know, no matter what level it is. You know, Folks have a lot going on. They've got their families, they have their jobs, they have their social commitments. And then to say, let me add this one more thing, I need you to be concerned about who is your city council person or your congressperson or your state rep, and it just doesn't really seem like it's all that exciting to most people. I mean, presidential election years come and people get really involved and, and excited and, um, and then everything else it just happens to kind of be on the ballot. Um, and it's always this fight to get people engaged um, and it matters so much in their lives who the people are in those positions and you know basically anything that you do I mean there's it's really hard to think of things that are not touched by someone who's an elected official I mean you think about the car that you drive and why you have a seat belt and why there's speed limits and why you drive on the, the way that you do and why the car is made of what it's made out of and even pajamas why your pajamas aren't won't go in flames. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these things are, were made by some decision by some person who was supposed to have the public's best interest at heart. Currently, it seems like it's like the one profession where nobody wants anyone with any experience. Like, I want you, uh, whoever has the least experience, I want you to be right. the person here making the decisions. And, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing all of the time. It is good to have new ideas and new people involved. But the fact that it becomes demonized to have some... Eff- experience as an elected official or understanding how government works or the process works, it's really bizarre. Um, And I think it's very unfortunate. And I think people have lost a lot of trust in institutions because some people have misused and abused the process, but that's really no different than any other profession where there are people who misuse and abuse the process and and the privileges of their, of their jobs. But we do have a, a different type of, oh, Responsibility, so we sh- we should be better. For, certainly, certainly saying that, but it, it it does bother me that people don't view these positions as important. Not because I'm in it and I not that I'm feeling that I need to be important, but because they are important in the decisions that we make. I mean, I sit in these rooms sometimes and think, I I can't even imagine if people would even know this is what folks are saying about people who look like me or who live in certain types of neighborhoods. Like, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it were just a different person who had different thoughts and feelings. We wouldn't even be fighting about simple, basic human rights types things because some folks don't believe everybody deserves simple, basic human rights. So it's it's kind of sad. I mean, I I do hope people get more engaged and want to participate more and understand a little bit more. And and maybe it's up to us as those elected officials to get people on our side maybe we've we failed at that over the years and and if that's the case well, we'll just have to spend some time trying to fix those relationships
1: i'd like to turn to something that has been a personal as well as professional battle for you lately uh, and i want to frame it though in a more positive way and let you talk about it from there you have been identified with beginning a a movement called hashtag we belong here. Yes. Movement. It's directly related to your treatment as a legislator in the Columbus State House. Yes. Can you talk
2: about that please? Yeah. And tell us that story. Sure would. So so as you said, I was elected before I was thirty. Um I was not the youngest, nor am I currently the youngest legislator who serves in the Ohio House or or Senate, maybe the Senate, the Senate's a little bit older, but since I had been elected, you know, we, I go to the State House, in the State House a lot, very busy legislator, and I was always searched when I would walk into the building, which originally I just thought that they just searched everyone, it was a government building, it's a safety protocol, so I didn't think much of it until um, I noticed everyone wasn't getting searched. And so I thought, well, I wonder what's going on. What am I doing differently that is requiring the highway patrol to search me and not everyone else and so i brought it up a couple times and some people said well maybe it's your purse or your bag is a little bit larger than my bag and your handbag looks like this and so there are all these different reasons that i just okay but everybody is taking some kind of briefcase in sometimes and you know it would it would vary i mean some people with big tote bags would get searched sometimes they wouldn't but i always did so that was the one thing that i I didn't notice i mean i won't say every single time but um, more often than not, um, and so at some point, about two years ago, we got new rules. At least we were told we had new security rules. They were doing some upgrades. Uh, we got an, we had an ID badge, which we always had. We had lapel pins that identified us each as a legislator. So it had your district number. So there was only one. Um, so it wasn't like they were in mass circulation. There's only one uh, for each legislator. And so we were told if you have your badge, you show your badge to the troopers, you can bypass the typical security of the searches and the questioning, just like any other employee who might have an employee identification badge right. that allows you to get into your workplace. And so even with that, I was still being stopped and searched and questioned about what I was doing there. So it just really just did not feel right. And I knew something wasn't right. And I just kept thinking for years, this has just been happening and what is going on and why won't they just leave me alone and let me get to work. And so I walked over one day to the state house with a colleague of mine and we get up to the security and you know he's we're walking next to each other he walks through the the gates if you want to call it a gate it wasn't exactly a gate but um without incident and then i was stopped and questioned and told i needed my bag to be searched before i was going to get in the building and so i said no you're not going to search my bag i mean it, every other time i was a little bit more willing to acquiesce to the search but this time i just wasn't because I, there was no reason. I just couldn't understand why would you why I needed to be searched. You just you hit your limit. Yeah, day. I definitely hit my limit. And, you know, it was interesting. I watched a colleague of mine walk through a white male with no problem, but then I needed to be searched. Okay. And so we went back and forth a little bit with the trooper. And my colleague said, well, she's a legislator. You know, let her through. And he said, no, I'm not going to let her through. I need to search her back first. And so we went back and forth just a little bit longer. And then eventually he let me through. And so when I got to the other side, I, I said, well, can you explain to me why you wouldn't let me through? You know, I had my badge, I had my pen on, I had this colleague of mine validate who I was. Why were you so insistent upon searching me? And his response was, well, you don't look like a legislator. <laughs> and then he kind of corrected himself, and said, well, you look too young to be a legislator. And so, again, as, as I said in the beginning, I'm not the youngest legislator that serves currently or did or ever in in the history of the Ohio house or anything, but you are. And I feel like I'm not sure if we made it clear. You are African-American. Yes, I am a black woman. Yes. So I am not a, if you look at the walls and the pictures of most of the legislators, you won't see many black women, but there are black women. Um, And we do stand out because there are so few of us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But again, when I have my badge and my, I, my lapel pin, it doesn't, matter and it shouldn't matter what I look like I have the credentials to get in just like any other employee in any other place of work if you have your credentials to get in you should be able to get in as anyone else would without being bothered but that was never my experience and so I had brought it up to our sergeant at arms and sent him an email just saying you know this has been happening for a very long time it's happened before this it's happened after this incident what is going on here like it's just really hard to figure it's hard to pinpoint it I've got an idea but you know you, I need I need something else here. And so, you know, it kind of fell on deaf ears. And I talked to different people about it. And I've told the story many times for many different reasons. And, um, you know, I told the story at at an event here in Akron. And a friend of mine tweeted about it. And someone from the State House Press Corps saw it and called me for an interview. And then she said, oh, this, you know, she seemed very shocked that this was happening. And nothing had really gotten better um, because the conversation that I that was tweeted was about an event that had happened with security that day when I was in Columbus trying to get into my office where I was told over multiple times I should say they need to see my badge so after I had produced my badge they had to see it again and see it again and see it again and I kept saying what else I literally said what else do you want from me Um, which wasn't necessarily taken very positively from the security officer but you know after you're searched all the time you know what else do you want me to do I can't turn into a white man to make it easier for you to accept my presence here. So um, my ID should be good enough. So, you know, since then, it's been an, an interesting conversation about what's been going on in terms of security. You know, I was people I think were shocked to see it kind of blow up the way it did I mean I certainly was because again it's been happening for years and no one really seemed to care about it it was just a minor inconvenience as as it had been seemed for me to just be searched what was the big deal and these Um, are all I just want to be clear of the facts these are all highway patrol
1: officers not
2: always and so that was one of the things that we found so the it was a highway patrol trooper who told me I didn't look like a legislator Uh, But we have different layers and levels of security, which is one of the things that we found out as I've been complaining about this, if you want to call it that, that there is a contracted security uh, officers that are uh, paid for by Department of Administrative Services. The troopers have a contract security officers. The House of Representatives has a sergeant at arms. So all of these different entities work together to protect us and kind of all work together to Make it challenging for me to get into the state house. So each, at some point, each one of these different groups had some role in it, and as we've been discussing, it now none of them really take any blame for it, and or they blame shift it to someone else. And it's 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 been a mess, quite frankly. <laughs> which, which almost uh, makes it
1: even more frightening, doesn't it? If it were a matter of these were always. State Highway Patrol, you could say, okay, there's." it's an example of institutional racism or whatever. The problem is we need to train Highway Patrol officers, and there's clearly a glitch there. But the fact that you're talking security officers that are coming from multiple sources, mm-hmm. and they're all making similar assumptions is yeah. in a way a little more frightening yeah. about the extent of the problem.
2: Yeah, right? it's, it's much bigger than, and it always has been just much larger than my interaction with the Highway Patrol officer. Mm-hmm. It's what people believe to be the face of leadership right. or the face of someone in a powerful position. And so if it automatically someone like me walks into your room, I'm, I'm under 30, I'm not under 30 anymore, but 30 years old and, and black and a woman and you immediately dismiss that person as a leader and you question their presence um, in a place where big decisions, important decisions are being made. That's a, that's another issue that we we have to tackle with. We have to start to really be honest and be willing to share the space of leadership with more than just middle-aged white men, which was my colleague who was able to walk in the building without being questioned right, or stopped right. and was greeted friendly. Whereas I was greeted with, the, I need to make sure you're not a criminal or you don't have right. anything in this bag that's going to kill or harm us. And so that's one of the bigger issues. And, and the other thing is, especially for those people who are going to be responsible for policing, not only our state house, but our communities, because if that's the experience I'm having the Ohio State House, in a post where some of the best of our best police forces are located, what's happening throughout the state or throughout the country when people are interacting with law enforcement? Are they also getting these um, immediate implicit biases that, that are coming out in those interactions that could be at, at sometimes deadly, as we've seen? So it, it has created a a different conversation and one that I try not to focus so much on, that interaction, that one day or those multiple days, but what that means over time and what that means uh, for, you know, young people who want to be in leadership or black people who want to be in leadership or women who want to be in leadership and what those barriers might actually look like. Shifting the perspective a little bit,
1: it's it's also... The state house is supposed to be the people's building, That's what they call it. it. It is taxpayers. It's where the public is supposed to interface with the elected officials that are the public servants.
2: That's what they call it.
1: And what kind of a statement is being made to just anybody's Uncle Ed and Aunt Evelyn who have an issue they want to discuss with their legislator, you're supposed to be able to have access. Yeah, and definitely. And it's concerning. Who's being told um, that they belong and who doesn't belong. On that note, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'd like you to tell then what happened when people began to listen to you and to listen to your complaints. We'll be back in a moment.
0: What they tell us, how they compel us I know what it's like to wonder what is true In the speeches the ignorant preaches. I know what it's like to be
1: To hear from you.
0: If you have feedback, suggestions, or
1: ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. We're back with Ohio Representative Amelia Sykes. Amelia, we were talking before the break about the unfortunate surprise you encountered when you began as a legislator of feeling like you weren't being given the same kind of treatment by State House security when you would show up for work every morning. Mm-hmm. You were just saying that that became more of an issue for you. Both it became more frequent, and also, you just became really sick of it and wanted it to stop.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was I'm a busy legislator. I've always been on a lot of committees, so I was going back and forth between the state house, where committee assignments and our chamber house chambers are located, and our offices in the Rife Building, and so we're always running late. I mean, every meeting always runs late and someone stops you in the hallway and and not that you intend to, but, you know, having to stop and then literally and physically having a reaction, not knowing if I'm going to have to battle with the troopers about whether they're going to let me in or what am I going to have to do to get in today? Um, and especially watching my other colleagues just Walk in with ease. Even staff people who um, weren't black, uh, who were not women, who just walked through with bags and boxes and all kinds of things. I just it just didn't make sense to me. Why were they always stopping me? Um, and so not only was it annoying, but it's embarrassing and it it does make you feel like you aren't supposed to be in there. And it's, right. maybe they weren't intentionally saying to me you shouldn't be in here, but Whenever you question someone's presence, there is some question about why are you here. It's giving you that message and it's giving everyone else
1: around who witnesses that the message oh, absolutely. about who is an outsider. Who, absolutely. Who doesn't really fit in here.
2: And it's it's already, already very apparent, you know, there still aren't any other black female legislators under 35. Um, so I do stand out in that way. But being singled out in a System where you where majority rules is not very um, helpful, and it's not it doesn't help my constituents when you know one I can't even get into the building, but two, what is it saying to them that you know just one trooper has the authority to basically invalidate the entire election and tens of thousands of people who voted yeah. for me to go to the state house and advocate for them. And he just says, Oh, you don't look like you're supposed to be here. I'm not even gonna let you in the building. I mean, what does that say to my constituents? Um, what it shouldn't say is, Oh, well next time we're going to make sure we elect someone who looks more like a legislator. That's not the answer. Um, but for some people that would be the answer. We'll just make sure we find someone who's more palatable and more, uh, reasonable to, uh, you know, someone in security to respect and allow to come in this building where that the opposite is true. We should have uh, make it a use this as an opportunity to add more people who are like me um, or who don't look like the majority of legislators. So people can see what it looks like to be from a diverse community, from a diverse state, from. Um, a place that has people who aren't just middle-aged white men, because, you know, we we have more than that in this state, and, it's, and our state house shouldn't just look like that, and those shouldn't be the only people who are respected. Well, and it, I think you're saying that. It
1: also illustrates the ways that our legislative bodies
2: don't reflect the demographic characteristics of our population. Not at all. Not at all, especially when it turned term- in terms of representation of women, we're about a fifty fifty state, and women make up about twenty two or twenty three percent of the general assembly um and so we've we've got about twenty five points to make up there um and so yes, yeah, that that is a problem in terms of how how are we representing a community of people when e- the representatives don't represent our state and you know we've we've battled with that all the time, and we're trying to encourage more. Uh, women, young people, people of color, immigrants uh, to participate because everyone has a perspective that's a little bit different, and especially uh, folks who don't have the majority of mindsets will certainly be different. Um, and I find myself in rooms all the time where people would have never ever considered my perspective and it's even with you know me talking about being stopped and searched when I would talk to some of my colleagues about it, they'd say, no one's ever stopped me. No one's ever asked me look at my, my briefcase. No one's ever stopped. How, I wonder why they do that to you. And I'm like, oh. Oh, no. wonder. I wonder. Huh. Huh. So And, and so it, <laughs> even just that experience makes people think, well, maybe it is true that some folks are treated differently the, based on the way that they look. And, you know, not that I'd necessarily want to be the person to give them that lesson, but <laughs> here you unfortunately, are. I, here I am uh, giving them that lesson. And maybe and hopefully in the future when someone says to them, this is my experience, they will believe it even though it's not their experience. And I think that's part of the problem we have all the time now. So you finally decided to take some action and to
1: push back.
2: Yes. So I filed a a complaint with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. So that was my first step. And they launched an investigation on themselves and to... Not my surprise or anyone else's. They found that they had done nothing wrong. (laughs) They uh, did a pretty long report. They did interviews with a bunch of legislators as well as some troopers. And although some troopers did admit to commenting on my physical appearance and the the reason why I was being patrolled and interacted with differently, that was not cause for – they did not find that to be unprofessional. And so they cleared themselves which, again, was not really a surprise, um, mostly based on the conversations I had had with the public safety director in my office. He was very clear that he did not believe that there was anything biased about their security procedures. He told me multiple times that they only have objective security procedures, um, and bias was just not an issue for them, and so that couldn't have been it. So um, there is nothing that they are willing to admit except for perhaps I had done something wrong. And they still contend something that I had done wrong. Maybe, and they will go down a list of things, but there is nothing that I had done wrong in that situation. So didn't get very far there. So I filed a complaint with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission um, against the Department of Public Safety, who is – um, the umbrella organization over the Department of Public, uh, the Highway Patrol, excuse me, um, as well as the Capitol Square Review and Advisory Board, which is the entity that is responsible for maintaining and securing the State House, the actual physical State House grounds, and they do some programming. Um, the Department of Administrative Services, because they have some contract security that they hire in the Rife Building, who I've had an issue with, and the Ohio House of Representatives, which um, employs the sergeant-at-arms and the sergeant-at-arms was is our first line of defense of sorts to any security issues Mm -hmm. and the person who gave us our instructions and our badges and our lapel pins and they help us navigate through security and it was the person who I contacted when I had the issue who sent it on to the highway patrol who didn't follow up which they actually did find that they had the Highway Patrol did find that they did something wrong by not following up with my original complaint two years ago, but not enough to show that they had actually done something wrong. So so going back, I filed the, the complaint with the Civil Rights Commission. Um, I requested to do mediation with all four parties so we could talk about bias and making sure that they're policing everyone the same. Wanted to make sure that everyone who's coming through, um, well, I wanted to make sure everyone who's coming through the state House doors or through the Rife Building where our offices are located they have a pleasant experience with security, that they feel like it is a place that they can come to to get their questions answered, that it is actually and truly the people's house. Um, But unfortunately, all four of those entities have refused to mediate with me. They do not want to sit down and talk about those issues. They don't believe that they have done anything wrong. They don't believe that there is um, any problem with the way that they treat or interact with um, myself or the general public. And so now the Civil Rights Commission will have to launch a full formal investigation. And it sounds like you wanted
1: mediation to be able to use it as a teaching opportunity, really, mm-hmm, to sit down and, and and talk about okay, we have we have a systemic problem here, and what do what do we do? What do we yeah. need to do and to address
2: I, it? And I'm not the only one, the or the only black female legislator who's had issues. Um, they've been documented in different ways, and it's just really a matter of mediation is a conflict resolution problem-solving process. Um, but unfortunately, when you have people who don't believe there's a problem, to them there's nothing to solve. Um, you, and this is not a big enough problem for them to want to solve it. So,
1: You had asked uh, Governor John Kasich yes. to
2: intercede. I have. And he has not responded to me. So I wrote him a letter. And, and typically when you write a letter to an elected official, they'll respond back in the same way. And I have not heard back from him.
1: Do you anticipate you will, or have you? No, I don't think enough? so. I okay. think that he
2: has. He's he's probably blown it off. Um, I think what one of the goals is is just to wait it out because he's going to be out of office soon. So he'll yes. let it be somebody else's problem, which is really unfortunate, um, especially considering I've sat through multiple speeches of his where he's name dropped black female legislators to talk about how good of race relationships he (laughs) he has fostered over the years and here is a situation in which there is a very glaring issue but he's refused to acknowledge it so that's um again not surprising it is disappointing um you know we hear a lot of people praise the governor for a lot of different things but this is not one where he should be and he can't take a victory lap over race relationships and not race relations and and not deal with this so what's the next step so the next step is to continue to wait for the investigation with the Civil Rights Commission. Um, so that's a much longer process. Everyone in this administration will be gone, which I think is the goal, to push it out so it's somebody else's problem and not theirs, which, again, is another reason why people don't trust government. <laughs> <laughs> they just kick the can down the road. Yeah. So here's here's that. But um, in the meantime, uh, you know, I've used this experience and I guess the platform that I've been given to – engage and rally um, other women particularly black women who serve our communities in different spaces with the we belong here campaign okay good let's talk about that (laughs) how did we get to hashtag we belong yeah so i was i did an interview for usa today um and apparently not unbeknownst to me until i watched it later i talked about multiple times uh we we do belong here we belong in these places we belong in these positions um and i was contacted by uh a woman from the Black Women's Congressional Alliance, um, and she works with a group called Think Rubrics with a think-take and uh, strategy organization. And, and they said, hey, we watched your interview. We know exactly what you're talking about. We were staffers on the Hill, and uh, we have we go through similar things all the time. Let's combine our efforts and, and see what we can push forward. So uh, working together with them, they came up with the logo and the We Belong Here. Well, we all came up with it, with it together um, and just we've just been pushing it out. And, you know, we had a nationwide phone call. We had about 100 women join us and just kind of talk about laying the groundwork and what we're doing and i not sure how it's going to unfold and what it's going to look like in the future, but what. My goal is, and I think what all of our goals were when we were talking about this, is to let women know that they are not alone in this. That you know, even though people will dismiss your complaints and you'll be too sensitive, or your tone is all wrong, or you're too emotional, or whatever two you can be, um, you're 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 you have validation in other women who have unfortunately gone through very similar experiences. And so, as I was talking to another group that I was in, a women in government group. One person referred me to a congresswoman who, I mean, her she had the exact same story with the Capitol Police. She, she had her lapel pin on and they kept, they told her, she, you know, we don't know who you are. We don't recognize you. We've never seen you. And, and she's going through all these motions about, you've seen me here before. Yes, you know who I am. I have my credentials. Why are you giving me such a hard time? Meanwhile, you know, all of her colleagues and people are looking at her like, you know, what is she doing? She's, you know, who's this mad woman here trying to, you know, sneak into the Capitol building? What has she done? Yeah, what has she done? And so she's, so she told, you know, so I read her, read her story and just thought, man, this is unbelievable. And then other women started reaching out, telling me different stories about, you know, being on their house floor of their respective legislative body and being told by a security officer they need to be they needed to leave because this was a spot for the legislators. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's so unfortunate that it's happening. Like, it's almost really sad to hear these stories, but, and, and then to tell people, just keep going, it'll be fine. Because I don't know that to be true. I don't know if it'll be fine. I don't know when it will be fine. But if we're not in these places, people will continue to think that we shouldn't be in these places. And um, so hopefully it's creating a, at least a sisterhood or a bond or just the fact just a a place or a space where folks know we believe you. We know what you're saying is true. We're not going to gaslight you if you bring it up. We'll support you through it. We can at least be a place where you can come vent. Um, and there are other people like you, and and hopefully we can move forward and continue to serve our communities like we always wanted to do. Um, and you know we don't really have control over other people's behavior but we do have control over ours and so the best we can do right now until we elect some more women in these spaces um and it becomes very clear that women do belong in legislative bodies or in white houses or in in the mayor's office or wherever wherever you're looking at that you know we we are supportive of one another until we can get that equity in positions of power absolutely absolutely
1: (laughs) I think with absolute respect toward security officers who are there to do the legitimate work of keeping people safe, and I'm sure you wouldn't disagree with that, that, that you know, an admiration oh, and a gratitude to people who are willing to put their lives on the line. At the same time, it's possible for us to recognize that there's, I think, a a sort of subtext when we talk about
2: security. What are we securing? Yeah, that was my question a lot of times. I I would say, tell me about the you know, young black woman who committed a mass killing in the United States in the past hundred years. (laughs) And so what is it about my profile or demographic that makes me dangerous? Mm -hmm. Um, And so nobody can answer that question because I don't fit the profile of any mass casualty perpetrator. And so if for no other reason, then you just think that I don't, belong in that building is the reason why you're stopping me you and you're literally asking me what are you doing here <laughs> well i mean i have my work id so obviously i work here in some capacity so there really shouldn't be any other question there should be no question once i show you that my, my i have my credentials so maybe you think i've forged them i mean it it, it this like you said the subtext means says it all I mean what are you what are you saying you're saying a lot of things by even asking that question even after you produce all the credentials and you don't require even everyone else to produce all those credentials and even if they do they have no problem so you know I just really hope that this doesn't become discouraging for people to want to be in these fields I mean it's already hard enough Um, you know we always talk about having a seat at the table we all want a seat at the table but you know they've created a new barrier that they won't even let you into the door in the room where there's a table to have they, a seat in. They pull so. the chair out from under you when you go to sit down at the Yeah, table. they did that. They, they do a lot of things, but it's 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 not right, but it's okay. We'll continue to rise above it and do the best that we can for our communities because they deserve it. Um, and I'm just always impressed with the women and uh, people of color who, despite all of the awful things that they go through, continue to work on and for the people, and that's that's encouraging. So that's that's one good thing out of, that's come out of this, for sure. While you're going through all of this, as well as being
1: having very powerful positions, both on the Ways and Means Committee and also as Minority Whip, you have championed some very important pieces of legislation. There's one I would like, in particular, for us to talk about today, and that's House bill number one,
2: House bill number one. Yeah, that's um a great story. It's 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 kind of interesting talking about it after discussing how challenging it was for me to even get in the building, right. <laughs> and then right. to have uh, House bill one, which was the primary piece. Metaphorically and literally, it yeah. was hard to get into the building. Definitely. So uh, to kind of shorten the story, because it, it was several years in the making. Um, House Bill 1 was the former House Bill 392, which was a bill to allow victims of dating violence to obtain civil protection orders here in Ohio. And Ohio and Georgia were the only two states in the country to not give this explicit right of protection.
1: Okay, i got to stop you there, just so we can all think about that for a minute and appreciate that. Um, You say it easily because you've had to say it so many times. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But... But that Ohio and Georgia still were disallowing women from getting protection.
2: Yes. So the so domestic violence so I'm gonna put on my lawyer hat here. Okay. So people understand domestic violence to be something they all have their their ideas of it, but it is a legal term. There is a legal definition. Mm-hmm. Um and it is violence that occurs within Certain relationships and, and 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 under Ohio law, that was a spouse, a former spouse, someone you had a child in common with, a relative to a certain degree of consiguity, um, and someone who cohabitated with um, anyone else nope, you couldn't get a protection order now that glaring omission is a boyfriend girlfriend type dating relationship, and that does not meet the definition of domestic violence, so if someone's boyfriend. Uh, beats up their girlfriend, it is a, under criminal law, like a simple assault, there is no access to the heightened protections um, that come with domestic violence type charges or civil protection orders, also known as restraining orders that might Mm -hmm. be more common for some people's vernacular. And so in trying to figure out what the issue was, it was basically defining a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, which is challenging. Uh, but one of the things that we found after doing a research of all the 50 states was that 48 other states, including the District of Columbia, had already figured it out in some capacity um, and had been figuring it out for a decade or more. And so finding a definition, at least in my opinion, was not that challenging because we had a lot of other states right, to,
1: right. to use. There and were some models. Yeah, out we had there. some
2: models and some were very specific some were very vague. Some were in the middle. And so I worked with the Florida statute because I went to law school in Florida and, and had worked in this arena as a law student. So that was what I was comfortable with. There were several other states that were similar. So Michigan, for example, used the same definition. So, you know, they're pretty close to Ohio. And then, you know, if you wanted to think really liberal state, California used this definition. And so did, um, oh, some were really, I think it may have been. Florida, somewhere, Alabama, that's what it was. So you, we went from liberal states to super uh-huh. conservative states to Midwestern states. It felt like a good definition, one I was familiar with. Um, and so I brought it to some people and talked to some folks, including some advocates, and they all told me this is a stupid idea. You're never going to get anywhere with this. Don't waste your time. We tried um, to do this before. It's not going to happen.
1: Stupid because?
2: Stupid because, um, one, some. I had a legislator tell me, These relationships aren't don't require that type of protection and they're just going to be used as a weapon. I had an advocate, a domestic violence advocate, tell me that I would single handedly ruin domestic violence by adding these um, non meaningful relationships to domestic violence statutes because they're not they're not worthy of that type of protection. And so. That's what I started with. That was those were some of the first comments to me about uh, this dating violence protection order bill, and I thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting ride here. So, but uh, I went forward um, with I, it anyway. I, yeah, I, I, wait, I gotta ask because <laughs> I'm just baffled by this.
1: So, were they saying that violence within a dating context doesn't happen, or are they saying that these women? Because they're so called just dating and not married to the abuser,
2: don't deserve the same legal protection. The latter would be true. They did not believe that they deserve the same legal protection, um, which was really challenging to hear and kind of devastating, especially from the advocates. Because, you know, if you look at the cycle of abuse and how uh, violent relationships uh, tend to 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 grow, the violence starts somewhere. It it typically does not start the day you get married. Um, It's a process that happens early in different ways, some sooner than others. Um, But again, I'm going to put on my public health hat now and, and talk about the prevention part of it. So when you know that there's a relationship that's in its early dating stages is violent, What public health would do is intervene as early as possible so you don't wait until you are married or you have a child together before you try to break it off when it becomes much more difficult, much more taxing, um, and almost impossible sometimes. And so when I would talk to people and say, well, why wouldn't we want to separate these people as early as possible, get both of these folks some help, some therapy, a breather from this relationship just so they don't continue the cycle with that person or anyone else why Why would we wait until they get married why would we wait till they move in with one another why would we wait and they would just say well that's just that's just what domestic violence is and it's going to be used as a tool to harm people and it's going to blame people that you know that's a typical thing they say about any violence against women whether it be rape domestic violence sexual assault you know everyone's making it up i don't know who will want to make up such a thing, but. Um, That that's what we were hearing. So uh, to, to just move forward a little bit more. So we worked through that. Fortunately, the Speaker of the House at the time was very supportive of the bill as well was the committee chair, both Republicans, and they passed the bill through. Had some challenges in committee process because the domestic violence lobby was not supportive of it. So I slowed it way down because it was moving pretty quickly. But we were able to get it through, went over to the Senate, had a couple hearings. Um, and the Speaker of the House and the last General Assembly uh, came to me and said, OK, this is the last day of session. We're going to put it, put your bill into another bill, amend it into another bill, send it back over to the Senate. They'll concur. And then we you know, you don't really get credit for it, but it'll still pass, which I thought was fine anyway, because I never thought my bill as a Democrat was going to pass anyway. So that was so a great we're thing. So, are going to do. kind of
1: hide your bill.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it was another protection and order bill. slide in it in the
1: last day possible, yep. so everybody just wants to go home for the summer. Yep, and it was
2: lame duck session where all these types of things happen. So there was another Senate bill that was um, dealing with protection orders. So We are going to amend my protection order bill into another protection order bill, then send it back over to the Senate, um, which is, you know, one of the – for me, it would have been a blessing of lame duck. But generally, lame duck is a nightmare. And – the Senate refused to concur with the amendment. So both bills died, um, including their senators bill and and house bill 392. So that was pretty unfortunate and, um, upsetting, but many people, especially from the house, you know, it kind of became like a power struggle between the Senate and the house and folks in the house really didn't like that the Senate did that. And, um, I had a lot of support from even my very conservative Republican colleagues saying that this was just a perfectly fine bill. We have no idea why they would do something like this. Let us know how we can help you next General Assembly. Hmm. So um, first day of uh, session, in this General Assembly, the speaker comes up to me before session and says, oh, Amelia, I think you're going to really like my speech today. And of course, I said, yeah, it'll be great speak- speaker. You always give good speeches, right? Um, and so during his speech, when he was after he was elected speaker again, he announced that House Bill 392, the dating violence bill would be House Bill 1, um, which is significant because the leadership usually reserves the first few bills as their priority bills. Mm -hmm. And so with one being the top priority. And so that was my bill. So that was really exciting. So, you know, uh, to go back to the uh, security issue, obviously, it's not like I was able to get to the clerk's office first because they didn't let me in the building. So it had to be designated as House Bill 1, and it was by the speaker. And so um, it took, took a while, but it did pass, and it is now effective. Um, and so people have who are in dating relationships now have the ability to obtain civil protection orders if they need them. So it's a good story.
0: It is a good story. <laughs> it's a good yeah. Story I mean, I hope it's
2: a useless bill hear. and no one ever needs right. it, but if uh, if they do, it's there.
1: Great. Well, we're going to take another short break and when we come back, I want to talk uh, about sort of the implications extending from your successive house bill 1 to current events at a federal level. We'll be back with Amelia Sykes in just a moment.
0: What they tell us, how they compel us. I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speech, is the ignorant preaches. I know what it's like to be.
1: Like what you hear, please tell well everybody about us. For more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website www.heartlandwoman.com. And we're back with Representative Amelia Sykes. I wanted to ask you to comment for a minute. Given we just finished discussing the success you had around working to prevent dating violence, we should say that at the moment that we are recording this, we have just finished the Senate Judicial Committee hearings for Judge Brent Kavanaugh to become Justice Brent Kavanaugh. And thanks to the efforts of a handful of senators. The vote on Judge Kavanaugh has been delayed for a week so that the FBI can conduct an investigation to the claims of sexual violence that have been levied against the judge. We've heard so much in the Kavanaugh hearings that so parallel what we heard when Anita Hill charged Clarence Thomas Mm -hmm. with sexual harassment. Everything from, or it's almost a progression of, she must be lying, she's not credible, and then when whoever the accuser is appears before the committee and they see that this is a rational woman and her claims are credible, then to dismiss them as crazy, as she's somehow emotionally disturbed, and ultimately to say, okay, even if it did happen, what's the big deal? And I'm thinking about the pushback that you got about talking about dating violence, even something as as um, mundane in a way, as basic, As being allowed to get a a civil protection order. The pushback of saying, eh, violence in a dating context, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) It's not important. Let's move on to something else. And I'm wondering um, if you can comment on this. Uh, on the Kavanaugh hearings in the state of Brent Kavanaugh's I, I don't know what to call it because yeah, we're in the middle of it now. Confirmation We, we know here. it's a nomination.
2: We we don't know what's gonna
1: happen as we speak.
2: No, we don't know and it's it's unfortunate that, you know, we there really isn't in my estimation any benefit for a woman to make such an allegation and it be false. Even if it is a legitimate allegation. Women who come forward, victims who come forward are not treated well. Um, it's challenging, it's heartbreaking, it's emotional. And certainly Christine Ford has not been treated well. No. No. And so it it, it says a couple of things and, and kind of that subtext that we were talking about earlier, that when someone comes forward with this type of information and the first thing is to discredit them and not to believe them is really bizarre Um, and it's really frustrating and it only seems to be for crimes that are against women or crimes against women when we say that violence against women are usually those power and control crimes so domestic violence sexual assault these aren't about lust or anger it's about one person trying to exert power over the other in a very inappropriate way, usually violent. And that person who is the perpetrator of that desire to control should never be in a position of actual power because they will surely abuse it. And the fact that you can have such a meaningful allegation credible allegation and still your goal is to undermine the person making the allegation but not to figure out what's going on with the person that we're alleging was violent it just lets us know I mean it, it it's always telling us that we just don't believe you we don't want to believe you and I don't know if that's a symptom of it's just hard to and people just don't want to believe that folks are mistreating people like this or if they like the status quo and they want to continue to be able to do it. But whatever the message is, it is heartbreaking. And it's hard to watch. And it's not productive for moving this country forward. And I I just can't imagine, I mean, as someone a part of the legal field, and knowing that there are appellate court judges and district court judges all across this country who are highly qualified to be judged, why we would stick so much support behind a man who has clear power issues beyond just the allegations from maybe four or five women now to his behavior and his response testimony to the Judiciary Committee. There are hundreds of other judges that we could look to. Why, this, why does it have to be this one? Um, even if you're looking at it in a political sense, there are hundreds of conservative judges Probably. Pick another one. Um, Why spend the time fighting about this person who is, not that we all aren't flawed, but flawed in a political liability? Find somebody else and find someone else we don't have to have this type of back and forth with. I mean, the, the previous justice that now sits there, Gorbosh, I believe I've said his name correctly. You know, Democrats didn't like him. They didn't want him anymore. Then they want Kavanaugh, but he also didn't come with this kind of baggage.
1: And he came, it should be noted, with the same, Neil Gorsuch, with the same, uh basically the same credentials. Yes. Uh, they graduated f- even from the same boys' prep high school. They graduated from the same law school. They clerked for the same judges. One... Was not accused of the sexual abuse of women, and one was.
2: And I, yeah, I just for the life of me, I can't understand why you would go to bat for someone. Um, And you know, it even if you want to, you know, think about the other side and say maybe you know he's wrongfully accused, and we don't know, and it was a long time ago, and all these other things that, you know, whatever you want to say about it. The the thought that a person can be appointed to the United States Supreme Court one of the most important positions a lifetime appointment there's really no way to remove this person from that position and they can have all of this baggage and will still go along with it it, it just doesn't make any sense i mean if you know he's already he's a district court judge right now which is a still a lifetime appointment a very powerful position it's not like he's losing out on <sighs> A minimum wage job and you know how dare we do this is a very very powerful position and there is no entitlement to this there is you don't just get this you have to be a certain kind of person and it's a
1: job interview it is not (laughs) presumed you know innocent until guilty it's not a criminal case it's a job interview
2: it is and every person who has gone through this process and even throughout this and especially now with the access to information we have, which is different than we've had ever before. I mean, I mean with each passing year, we have more access to more things and it's going to be a very challenging process especially when people are so divisive and it becomes so political but a supreme court appointment is political i mean no matter how you you want to shake it it is political um and there will be some political things but there's no entitlement to be a supreme court justice what um did... and to pretend like he has an entitlement to this simply because he was selected i mean we can talk about uh merrick garland where we about his position let's bring him back up what is the message?
1: you think is being given to women because women in this country are reacting very very strongly oh yeah we're so far beyond just talking about a gender divide here oh definitely what is the message being given to women so
2: there's many messages one we don't believe you um but here's the thing about this one i so when we were talking about the the dating violence bill you know the the inf- issue i would always hear is you can't believe these people they're just going to do this to get back at somebody it's going to be revenge and so there's that conversation but i don't think these people i don't think the members of that judiciary committee
0: they don't believe her. Yeah.
2: I I think they believe her. They just don't care. Yeah. And that's probably worse than thinking that they just don't believe you. The fact that something like that can happen to you in such a formative part of your life and adults will say, "Well, it's not that big of a deal. We're still going to put this man on a in a very esteemed powerful position in spite of the fact that he did something like that to you." And it's, you know, that he would sexually abuse women and it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I I think that's really what the the message is. It doesn't matter. We will still, I mean, we have a a president who talked about, gloated about sexually assaulting women, and he's a president. And so that message is you can do that, and it doesn't matter. Um, We've had all kinds of folks, you know, you look at the, you know, gymnastics scandal, and Sandusky and Penn State, like all these things can happen. It just doesn't matter because there's always something else that's more important. Football is more important. This program, this sport is more important. And I mean I, I it's sad to think that for so many women that are coming to the realization or knew it but forgot it or tried not to believe it that we really are being treated as second-class citizens and if it were up to some folks they would gladly legalize all of that and they have in some respects um but it, i i think these people believe her they just don't care well and in fact his
1: his friend mark judge ironically named has in fact as an adult while he was teaching at georgetown mm-hmm said, well, there should be a gray area about consent. I mean, he went so far as to say women even saying, no, the law shouldn't enforce that. And I believe the exact language was because the beauty of uncontrollable male sexual passion should be celebrated more.
2: Yeah, no, not at all. That's that's. That's out of line. I, I mean, basically that's totally saying,
1: out of line. you know, that that women don't even he he would argue that women don't even have the right to
2: say no. But we but we see that all the time in different policies. I mean, one of the um, most glaring policies that speaks to that is the the issues at school with the girls when they wear spaghetti straps and they don't you know, the girls can't wear spaghetti straps because the boys are going to be distracted. Well, right. Why is it my responsibility to keep you from being distracted? Why don't you just not be distracted? Um, and so then we're policing these girls and we're letting them know at a very young age that it is your responsibility to make sure that someone else doesn't harm you right. in a way that it is totally a, somebody else's behavior. I'm not responsible. I shouldn't be held responsible to make sure that someone doesn't objectify or put their hands on me in a way I don't want to. Um, you know, we all take precautions to do things, but, when you put that burden on women and we started very young with even the policies about this, the length of their skirts or their shorts or sleeveless or not. sleeve I mean, when you, and I don't think most people even think about it like that, but it is exactly what it's saying. It's to not distract the boys. That should not be the burden of a 13 year old girl. And so when this 13 year old girl becomes 17 and then something happens to her, we, ought, we we then blame it on her. Well, what did you do wrong? Well, where were you? And did you drink? And you knew you shouldn't have been there alone by yourself. Where were your friends? And you should have never been there. It doesn't matter what, where you were. You could be at home in bed in a fortress and somehow it would still be their fault because that's how it always is. It is for some reason we're always protecting the perpetrator when they do these egregious assaults on women in no other crime is treated like that. You don't ever have to do that. No one's character in a theft case is brought up about. You know how often do you how often do you lock your car doors? No one ever asks you that in a in a theft trial. You know if you never lock your car doors, it doesn't matter. Somebody stole your stuff. They stole your stuff, and they're liable for it. And it, it it's just so hard to stomach. Um, but now I think at this point they're just letting us know they they know we weren't we weren't lying about these things. They just don't care.
1: I wrote. Senator Rob Portman a long letter last week uh, in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings for for one reason that I I, in trying to call all of his various offices his phone lines had all blown up Mm -hmm. and it was because so many people were Mm -hmm. watching and calling and so I was actually glad because I could sit down and compose a pretty lengthy letter and What I found, I ended up concluding to him, was I I said, I love this country. I am a very patriotic American. I love our democratic system, and I'm proud of it. But what you are doing is telling me that this is not my country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That this country does not belong to women. No, it does not. No, it is not, and I was hoping you would talk me out of
2: that, but yeah, I'm sorry, I wish I could, I mean, you know, for Uh someone like Senator Portman, who, you know, in full disclosure, I don't agree with many of his policies, um, and, you know, he was the person who was very adamantly against gay rights until his son came out, and then he switched his position, but the thing about women's rights and sexual assault is it Sort of doesn't matter. It never matters if you have a daughter or a wife or a mother. It's these folks just don't seem to humanize these victims in any meaningful way, um, as others have in other situations. And I, I think they all understand that there are benefits they get to keeping women in second-class citizenship, um, in subservient positions, and constantly fearful. That gives them the edge. And they don't want to lose that. And so at this point, they're so emboldened by so many things that they just say, "We don't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we know you're we, we believe you. We know we know the, he, these people did all these awful things, but we're just going to go along with it anyway. And they got a r- away with it with electing their current president. And so if <laughs> the president can be that person, let's see how far down we can go. Because and that's the scary part when when we see it, now. it seems a little bit more challenging to do. The closer you get to people, because there seems to be much more of an impact and ability to stop some of these things or or push back on them. But when it's such a large, prominent message, I mean, why would these, why would girls and women feel safe here? I mean, would, why would they? I mean, we're not giving them any indication that we're here to protect them or care about them, about their feelings or their bodies or their agency over themselves, and and that's reflected in more than just these confirmation hearings and it's also the message that we're giving
1: to boys about what manhood means that it's not about kindness and caring and respect of other people
2: about dominating and power and control and that's and that is exactly what these types of things are rape domestic violence, intimate partner violence, these are all power and control crimes. Uh, it's not about anger. It's not about rage. It's, I, I didn't lose my temper. It is someone who is working to exert control over someone else. Um, and, that's and it isn't because you happened. like beer. And, it's not, <laughs> and it is not because he <laughs> likes beer. And we're not going to blame it on alcohol or drugs either because that's an easy scapegoat. But this is someone who has tried to claim power in a very violent way and you think about someone who has that type of psyche being on the United States Supreme Court and the decisions that they have to decide and the impact that has for people in this country and beyond and this is the guy we're going to it's it's awful it's just so silly I want to ask you
1: how do as as women and, and I'm, I guess I want to ask you personally given what the the battle you're currently fighting at the State House and I mean that both the personal battle you're fighting in terms of not being stopped and often harassed Mm -hmm. by the security guards there but also just the, the daily battles you wage on behalf of your women constituents. How do we how do we deal as women? with the rage we feel (laughs) how do we not succumb to frankly depression you know how how do we not I mean I made a joke to to um, some folks the other day saying given the kinds of circumstances going on now I don't drink nearly enough and I with my apologies to people who Mm -hmm. um, suffer from uh, addiction issues I don't mean to belittle that, I simply mean uh, how
2: how do we cope
1: with this? What do we do? Yeah,
2: it's it's hard, it, and there's no easy answer to it. I, you know, one of the things that I do is I can't watch the news, <laughs> and that's hard for someone like me who should know the news all the time. But I have to be very strategic about where I get my news from, so I don't watch cable news networks, none of them, because it's just too inflammatory and it's too much, and I can. Literally feel my body changing when I watch it, and so I can't do it anymore. And so that's just something that's a little bit of self care for me, just to not watch it, not expose. I walked around with chest it. pains all last week because I was
1: watching the yeah. hearings, and I. I You know, and I had a a dear long-term friend who texted me saying, "Are you all right? Please tell me you're all right because I feel like my head is going to explode. I'm getting a migraine." You know?
2: Yeah. No, those things are. But yeah, it's hard because you want to stay informed and know what's going on. But then if you watch it, you know it's going to hurt physically. So that's just one of the things I do. You know, the thing I like about We Belong Here is that it's creating a network of women who you can talk to about these things, who you can share with. Um, and you can say it in a safe space without feeling judged, um, which is helpful. So leaning on one another, whatever that network is. And, you know, the most powerful thing is, is just for women to get involved and to be engaged so that we don't have decision makers who basically tell us your agency, your life, your body does not matter, um, because that's what they're telling us every day. And, you you know, sitting back and saying, oh, somebody else will take care of this is not going to work. It's not working. This is how we got here. People being apathetic and not really engaging much in it. And, um, you know, there's this this plaque in the state house that says something like uh, people get the government they deserve and, you know, they vote for the government they deserve. And not that I'm saying people deserve this because nobody deserves this, but we deserve better than this for sure. Um, And if we can participate in our process to make sure we get what we deserve, which is not what we have right now, Uh, I think we'd have different outcomes. And it's not going to happen overnight, which is the hard part, because I think people are feeling the need for some immediate satisfaction, which we're not going to get immediately. But, uh, you know, we have an election coming up, so... That can be at least one way we can win, and um, maybe it'll give people some hope to keep moving forward if it turns out the way that they want it to, um, and and send a message that we don't have to take this, and we don't have to deal with this. What do the midterms, the upcoming
1: midterm elections mean?
2: They mean everything. I mean, it's going to, one, just send a message to our current officials who may or may not be responsive um, to make them responsive. Um, One of the things about you know, we have a constitutional amendment on the ballot and you know, no matter what you think about it or how you feel about issue one, it's it is a result of legislative inaction. This figuring out drug resentencing and drug crimes, it was a legislative action. The legislature refused to do it. Now the people are deciding to figure it out. And so maybe you don't like the way it's happening, but we gave them the authority to do it. And now they're going to do it because the the leadership in the legislature has chosen not to and set on their hands for a decade on this issue. Um, And so people recognize that. I mean, I hope folks know how much power they have when it comes to voting people are afraid of people voting. That's why they make it so hard for certain folks to do it because they don't want, yeah. they want the outcomes to be a certain kind of way. And so we just have to show them. And this is the way that we can show them that if we don't like something or we do like something, uh, we speak with our, our votes. And, and I, you know, we know that the redistricting is going to be coming up soon. Um, we've just got a state that is dwindling and going down and all types of Between job creation and infant mortality and unemployment, we are trailing everybody. So we've got to get a different direction going so we don't tank in the Midwest and throughout the country. And uh, we just have to do something different. And I'm hoping that people recognize that and and understand that one of the ways that we can do it is through voting. So So I can never, never say enough for people just to engage in this process because it is very important and it impacts everything that we do. Amelia Sykes,
1: thank you so much for this conversation. I just want to ask you now: Will you come back and sure. talk to us? If I didn't talk your talk, your ear off? Yeah, sure. Uh, no, we've got <laughs> so that's you've got a lot to say. We've got a lot to talk about. We'd love to have you back and to talk about you know post midterms legislatively for Ohio. Where are we going and where do we need to go? Sounds good to me. I hope we can have that conversation at some point. Thank Thank you. you so much. Amelia Sykes, who is for the state of Ohio, minority whip, and representative of the 34th District. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We leave you today
1: with this thought from Eleanor Roosevelt. You gain strength courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You were able to say to yourself, I lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.